been really impressed with the respect and care you've been showing for each other, um, guarding each other's silence. Um, it's no small feat to have about 110 of us in a small space day after day. You're really um, demonstrating the, the potential for harmony in our species. And um, it's often not so demonstrated in a lot of places, as we've noticed. <clears throat> so I'll start with a little a short poem this evening by Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at the table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. <clears throat> so tonight I want to talk about Anicca, impermanence. Because your relationship to it, your understanding of it, has a direct bearing on the amount of suffering you're going to experience in this life. And to make the point in the, in, the, in the affirmative, if you can deepen and refine your relationship with impermanence, it becomes a gateway to happiness, to freedom, to peace. <clears throat> and this from the Buddha in Pali first. Anicca, Vata Sankara Upadewa Ya Damino Upajitva Nirujanti Tessa Upasimo Sanko All conditioned things are impermanent, they are arising and passing away. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, that is peace. So when we look even in a cursory fashion, we see everything's changing. The seasons come and go, birds migrate, mountains erode, we erode, Sometimes looking in the mirror can be a shocking experience. Like, how did that happen? You know? But it is what it is. Time passes, things change, and they change a lot. 
scientists believe we're now in the midst of uh, another mass extinction. On the average, there are three life forms becoming extinct each hour, which adds up to about 27,000 extinctions a year. Uh, the World Wildlife Fund does a, uh, uh, publishes a living planet report every few years. And they, they track, they count thousands of species of animals, the numbers of species, in selected populations of vertebrates. So they're counting mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish. And since 1970, the living planet index has declined 52%. So the number of animals is less than half of what it was since 1970. It's not the first time this has happened. Over the last four billion years, there's been four or five major extinctions. And each one of them knocks out between 70 and 95% of the species on, on this planet. For a total of, get this, I don't know who, who in the windowless rooms counts this stuff up, but there's been somewhere between 30 billion and 4,000 billion species have gone extinct on this planet so far. There's a paleontologist. Well, he, t- he died recently at the University of Chicago, David Ropp. He's a, he was an uh, expert in extinction rates, things like that. Um, he likes to say all species are extinct because statistically, pretty close. 99.99% of all the species that have existed on this earth are now gone. You know? And <clears throat> the average length of time for any complex organism on this planet is about 4 million years. That's the average. And coincidentally, that's about the time, 4 million years, where the chromosomes split off from the chimpanzees, our cousin and us, the hominids. So, there we are. <clears throat> so, uh, I don't think I have to say that extinctions are always bad news for the, for the victims, but it appears that it's a good thing for a dynamic planet like this. After each mass extinction, there's been dramatic leaps forward. <clears throat> it's kind of like after a forest fire. There's tremendous growth. It, it wasn't that many years ago where across the road from where I lived, the, the farm across the road, it was a very windy, dry day. The, the, a tree blew down, hit a power line. The power line torched the field. And there was this raging fire, of which I thought I might lose my house. But as luck had, had it, I didn't. And the pasture that came back has been so lush I mean, it's even hard to look at it. It's so bright and beautiful. So it's... Extinctions have refreshed this planet. You know, they opened the doors to new waves of varying life forms. And of course, this time, it's pretty much scientifically agreed, except for a few outliers, that humankind is exacerbating this changeover of life. 
you know, rather than in the past where it was, well, there was a meteorite strike or, well, there was a um, polarity shift or, well, there was, you know, extreme volcanic activity. Um, But whatever the causes, nothing remains the same. Everything's in motion. Everything. The continents continue to move. Antarctica um, was once a tropical climate. It drifted to the South Pole. It may become tropical again, you know. And by one calculation, you remember the earthquake a few years ago in Japan? The whole island moved 17 inches in a matter of moments. I mean, the earth itself has never been in the same place for more than a moment. It spins around at about 1,000 miles an hour, maybe 1,100 miles an hour. It's moving around our sun and the solar system at 70,000 miles an hour. The whole solar system is moving at a million miles an hour in our Milky Way galaxy. And there are over a billion, over a billion, I can't get my head around that, solar systems like ours in our galaxy. And the whole galaxy itself, when you look up, if you live in an area where you can see the galaxy, um, it's moving at a million miles an hour. And as far as we can see, there are millions of galaxies like the Milky Way galaxy, all filled with billions of solar systems. And an interesting thing about in our corner of the galaxy, we can't see everything but the thousands of galaxies that we can see kind of in our corner of the universe, they're all moving toward something, into an, toward an entity that's been named the Big Attractor. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but that's what scientists call it, the Big Attractor. You can Google it. You know. So, I mean, how big is it all? Nobody really has a clue. Uh, We've all heard of dark matter. Scientists say it makes up 95% of the mass of the universe, and they don't know what it is, you know. And then there's its companion, dark energy. It dominates the energy field. The the energy field, they don't know what that is, you know. Again, no clue. It's absolutely awe-inspiring. The vastness of this mystery and everything in motion, nothing still, nothing. So looking out in the universe with our Hubble telescope, if that's not enough to blow your mind, just, just look to the smaller worlds. Look in the other direction. You know, scientists have developed more and more powerful instrumentation to, to look first into the atom and then into subatomic particles. And what we found there is just as crazy and awe-inspiring as looking out into this unfathomable universe. If you blow up the nucleus of an atom, you remember grammar school, they told us there's a little nucleus and as the electron spins around. Well, if you blow that up to the size of a pea, the electron that spins around it would be a half a mile away the size of a dust mite. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of space in everything. Our eyes are so crude, we can't pick it up. And that's just the beginning. You know, when, when we look even closer into the components of an atom, they find smaller particles that change form millions of times, 
millions of times in a nanosecond. And on closer inspection, it's just energy, vibrating energy. Fields of energy we're just beginning to have some concept about. What a mystery. Jonathan talked about it last night. Can we open to that? So the the Buddha understood this macro and micro world without the aid of any expensive hardware. He didn't have a telescope, didn't have an electron microscope, but his instrumentation that he used was very, very sophisticated, entirely organic, close at hand. His six senses. Applying these six senses to directly experience was all that he needed for his liberation. Just as you're doing this week, just as you are in your practice, observing as mindfully as you're able the arising and passing of phenomena over and over and over, the breath, the body sensations, emotions, thoughts, sounds, tastes, smells, touch, both internally and externally. From Zen Master Dogen, to what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops shaken from a crane's bill. To what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops shaken from a crane's bill. He gives us, he points us to the fleeting nature of it all. The movement, the temporary flash of moment after moment. So, uh, let's, let's try a little meditation together. <clears throat> and see what we can directly perceive of all this changing phenomena. This isn't going to be so unlike what you have been doing. We're just going to emphasize motion a little bit. So settle in. Find that posture that gives you some measure of alertness and comfort. Let's prime the pump by taking a few really deep breaths. Taking a deep breath in and holding it. And releasing it slowly. Taking another even deeper breath in and holding it. And releasing it slowly. And one more, filling the lungs to its capacity, holding it, and release. And simply bringing your attention once again to the miracle of aliveness.
directly experiencing the entire field of sensation in this body. Paying particular attention to any motion that you can experience. Is there vibration? Is there tingling? Pulsation? Sparkling? Can you detect the movement of energy? Now bringing attention attention to just the head alone. Feeling the head from the inside. The aliveness. Can you experience movement? Detect any movement. Experience the surface of the skin on the head. The aliveness there, the movement. And now bringing attention to the shoulders, arms, and hands. The aliveness, the volume of a live space. The movement, not static. And now experiencing the entire torso, legs, and feet. From the inside. How does that aliveness manifest? Does it vibrate? Is it effervescent? Does it bubble, sparkle, pulse? And once again, for a few moments, opening your experience to the entire body, head, neck, shoulders, arms, Torso, legs, feet. This alive body and this very mysterious ability to be aware of it. And 
You know, you can open your eyes or keep them closed if you like. Maybe during this short meditation or sometime in your practice, you might have had that experience where it seems like everything seems to vibrate, kind of bubble, tingle a little bit, champagne bubbles kind of moving through the system in an interesting way. Maybe not, but maybe you have. And what might this be? An early teacher that I had, and many of you have studied with and talked to you and read your sheets, and S.N. Gwenka. He's taught thousands of students a repetitive body scan that he learned from Uba Kim, a Burmese master, whereby you just sit and you scan and you scan and you scan, and that's all you do. You don't walk, you don't do anything, you sit. It's not for everybody, and uh, um, but eventually, if it hasn't driven you crazy, uh, you can get so sensitized to the energetic, vibratory nature of this body and the surrounds about you <clears throat> that you do begin to believe that you're, that you're actually sensing at the subatomic level. Another teacher of mine uh, talked of this experience as the activation of, ex- of, of impermanence. The activation of impermanence. It can be very powerful. I remember a number of years ago um, when I was on retreat for uh, five months studying with uh, Sayadaw Pawak, um, John Burmese jhana master, very rigorous teacher, but with so much heart and so much patience. You know, it was like for me, it was like the great patient father I didn't quite have. Um, <clears throat> but in that retreat, um, we he it was a small group of us. Began by all the sittings were an hour and a half, and then they were moved up to two hours, up to three hours. He would check us several times a day, the kind of level of our samadhi. And then he would task us to do certain things. And one of the many tasks that he would, he would uh, put us on was that those effervescent bubbles that we might experience, was he wanted us to look into one of them and identify characteristics what color is it? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? What's it like with its nutritive essence? And what sex is it? <laughs> so were we really doing this? You know, we're meditating for these long hours, month after month. This is the only person we're seeing is this beautiful old guy in a robe and he's like telling us to do these crazy things. So I'd say, I don't know whether I'm hallucinating or experiencing this, you know. And he'd laugh at me and say, ah, go do it some more, you know. (laughs) So I still don't know. know? And what what is the power of samadhi? The ability to bring the energy of the heart and mind together. What, what is its limit? Does it have a limit? 
I don't know. But direct experiences like this when we're meditating are different than just intellectually knowing the concepts. I mean, scientists measure this stuff. They look at all this stuff. They articulate the nature of change and spaciousness just better than any Dharma teacher, really. But does that make them a happier person? You know? Do they suffer less than anybody because they know this intellectually? Are they freer in any way? A number of years ago, I, I, I was invited to the, our local observatory near Charlottesville. It's the uh, Leander McCormick Observatory. It was finished being built in 1884, and at the time, it was the biggest one in, in the world. Now it's kind of cute and antique, and, but it still works. <coughs> so my task was to talk about the, the Buddhist cosmology, 31 planes of existence, so I'd get, I got up and talked about the hell realms and then there's the animal realm and then there's the human realm and then there's all these other kind of deva realms and this and that. And then there was a scientist who spoke about the kind of scientific uh, take on the universe. And it was a nice night. We all got to look in the, tele- we all got to look in the telescope. And, <clears throat> and I knew some of the scientists there. A bunch of scientists had come and and I know them per- personally. And really, their lives are no better than anybody else. They have this, and maybe a lot worse in some cases, they have this great intellectual understanding of impermanence and that, and that everything is vibrating space and nothing's stationary looking out or looking in. They totally know that. So knowing it intellectually is only the start it's only the start. But not unless you take on the training of sitting quietly and directly experiencing over and over the bubbling, arising and passing of this creation. Over and over until your cells start to know it. Until you start to internalize it in a way that's active. Only then is your life transformed. But that's exactly what you're doing here. And when your cells begin to kind of accept and know and understand this at a deeper level, this impermanent flow of everything in creation, you're able to relax more. The interior war can start to cool a little bit. The interior war where you're trying desperately to freeze things and solidify them to be one way or the other. The uh, venerable Analio, a, a German monk who's now living here up at BCBS, and <clears throat> many people are beginning to consider him the foremost Buddhist scholar of our age. He's also a very strong practitioner, practices hours each day. He's got a great sense of humor. Terrific guy. He wrote a book called Satipatthana, the direct path to realization. Satipatthana, the direct path to realization. And it's kind of an immediate classic. It's a book about the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Satipatthana Sutta is where the Buddha outlines the foundations of mindfulness. Jonathan talked about them last night. It's the Sutta, really, if you 
want to trace some things back. It's the origin of all the mindfulness programs in existence, all the books about mindfulness, comes back to this sutta of the Buddha. And so at the end of the book, and it's a challenging book to read, because he's really an academic scholar, Uh, he sums up this, which most people believe is the most, maybe the, it's the most read or most studied sutta of all the Buddha's discourses. He sums it up in four, four words about what the Buddha was telling us to do in meditation. Just four words. Keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change. And there's a lot behind those four words, of course. But just think about that. And this from Pema Chodron. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Just as the four seasons are in continual flux, winter changing to spring, to summer, to autumn, just as day becomes night, light becoming dark, becoming light again, and in the same way, everything is constantly evolving. Impermanence is the essence of everything. It is babies becoming children, then teenagers, then adults, then old people, and somewhere along the way, dropping dead. Impermanence is meeting and parting. It is falling in love and falling out of love. Impermanence is bittersweet. It's like buying a new shirt and years later finding it as part of a patchwork quilt. People have no respect for impermanence. We take no delight in it. In fact, we despair of it. We regard it as pain and we resist it. Somehow in the process of trying to deny that things are always changing, we lose our sense of the sacredness of life. We tend to forget that we are part of the natural scheme of things. Anicca, vata, sankara, upadeva, ya, damino, upajitva, janu, jitsu, tesam, upasamo, sukho. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Okay, so we all have this wise understanding that everything changes. It's also natural for change to bring up fear. Pema was aiming at it there, too, in her little piece. On the very primal level, change threatens your survival. And those survival energies within you, they struggle mightily to preserve that survival. Those energies want to grasp tightly to anything pleasurable and never let go. They resist, push away anything that's unpleasurable or unpleasant. The survival energies activate and attempt to stockpile all kinds of resources, never satisfied. They worry. They defend against any outside threat, real or imaginary. They activate with the goal of having you live in comfort, safety, and living forever. 
Of course, this is a little impossible. <clears throat> and if we follow these, if we follow these energies, our life is exhausted. You know, we can make ourselves sick. But the reptile part of the brain that's driving all this survival, it doesn't know this. It doesn't know any better. It just wants more pleasure and more comfort. It wants more resources to make you secure. It doesn't see the big picture. It can't. This from uh, Billy Collins kind of depicts the movement that we're involved in. How exhilarating it was to march along the great boulevards in the sun flash of trumpets and under all the waving flags, the flag of ambition, the flag of love. So many of us streaming along, all of humanity really, moving in perfect step, yet each lost in the room of a private dream. How stimulating the scenery of the world the rows of roadside trees, the huge curtain of the sky. How endless it seemed until we veered off the broad turnpike into a pasture of high grass headed toward dizzying cliffs of mortality. Generation after generation, we keep shouldering forward until we step off the lip into space. And I should not have to remind you that little time is given here to rest on a wayside bench, to stop and bend to the wildflowers, or to study a bird on a branch. Not when the young are always shoving from behind, not when the old keep tugging us forward, pulling on our arms with all their feeble strength. That's the deal, you know, the inexorable truth of being born into this creation. It's how nature is set up, whether we like it or not. Maybe we didn't read the small print before we got born. You know, I I really love old movies, and, and one of the aspects of old movies, there's a lot of great Dharma old movies. Try The Treasure of Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart one of the great Dharma movies about greed of all time. So one of the things I like about it is watching all these actors and the credits come down at the end and there's the lighting people and the sound people and this and that, but they're all gone, all of them. If you watch a movie that's old enough, none of those people are left. They've entered the mystery. And do you, I don't know <coughs> whether you do or not, do you have a ghost list? I have a ghost list. It's a list of all the people I've known that are gone. And at this age, that's a long list. I think back the, in grammar school, a little friend that I lost with leukemia. It was a very profound event. In high school, some people that I knew killed in a car crash. In my high school, five of the boys were killed in Vietnam. 
through moving through life, friends and loved ones who committed suicide, people dying young of various diseases, and now at this ripe old age, people dying off in a more kind of expected actuarial way. You're just old. <laughs> you know? I can remember I worked many years in hospice, um, first as a volunteer and then on, on the board, a couple decades actually. <clears throat> and when I, when I first started was when the AIDS ep- epidemic was starting to hit the population and somehow I was assigned to be the support person for a number of AIDS people in Charlottesville. Um, and people in various ways would meet their early demise and some with great dignity and some not so much. And, but I, but, so I have very fond memories, but I also have a memory of a, an older woman I was working with. She was in her late 80s. And she just couldn't get over, why me? Why me? And I never said it out loud, but look, you're like 89 years old. What's the expectation here? You know, but, but right to the end, it was like, no, not me. How could this happen? It's just the deal. So how can we work more directly with this truth? And a truth that can be kind of scary. Uh, and the Buddha understood that, hey, this, these are, these are the, some of the big ones. You know, How can I help my students work with this? And tonight I want to share with you a practice I've been doing for 20 years. Every day I do it. When I'm sitting up here in the morning, part of what I'm doing is this. The Buddha recommended it to all his students. He just assumed everybody had the, this bundle of fears. It's, you know, first and foremost, it's a practice designed to reflect on the truth of what we've been born into. It's also a practice that can reduce your fear, your overall quotient of fear. And it's referred to as the five daily recollections or the five daily remembrances. And those of you that have studied with me at different times know that I recommend it in a lot of situations. It's ordinarily not something that I teach in a, like a, a one-off, you know, come tell us about meditation. But, look, you people are all in the deep end of the pool now. So, you're fair game for everything. And here are the, here are the phrases that I contemplate. I'm going to just read them now, and then I'm going to talk about them a little bit, and then we're going to work them together a little bit. And they can really be articulated in any way that kind of strikes a chord for you. But this is the way I've kind of landed with them over the years. I am of the nature to age and decay. I haven't gotten beyond aging and decay. I am of the nature to be ill or injured. I haven't gotten beyond illness or injury. Of course, you can guess the third one. I'm of the nature to die. I haven't gotten beyond death. Fourth one happens to be my favorite. Everything dear and delightful to me will change and vanish. Okay? The fifth fifth one's off on a little different track. 
I am the heir to my actions. I am related to my actions. I am supported by my actions. Everything that I think, say, or do, whether skillful or unskillful, that I will inherit. Okay? So now the first four, old age, sickness, death, and everything vanishes, that's kind of aiming at life's inherent fragility. And the fifth one's more about cause and effect. What we do matters, and it has an effect. And these daily recollections are mentioned in a number of suttas. And uh, one of the suttas, called the Discourse on the Noble Quest, points out that the first three remembrances around decay, decay, sickness, and death were what kind of got the Buddha up and going uh, and, and had him leave his very comfortable confines and become an ascetic, a wanderer, and to seek the truth. It was reflection on those first three. <coughs> Most of you know the story of, of Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be. Briefly, he grew up in a gated community. You know, it was a family palace, guarded. They had some other homes around for different seasons. You know, kind of second and third homes and trendy places. He received an elite private education. He never associated with people outside his class. You know, really not any different than a child, you know, born today into wealth and power. It's the same kind of experience. But this, this guy had a burning spiritual desire. Opened his eyes, brought up his curiosity, this kind of courage and commitment. He turned his back on all this privilege and he went to seek the answers to the deepest questions. Like, what is this nature of suffering? And what can we do about it? In another discourse that, that uh, talks about this particular practice and talks about old age, sickness, and death and the reflection on that. <clears throat> and, and in that discourse, the Buddha talks about, well, it's designed uh, to help weaken or overcome our intoxication, our intoxication with youth, health, and life itself. Because all of these, in the long run, are completely unreliable. If you're dependent on youth, health, health, and life itself for your happiness, if you've got a vice grip on that and that my, and your happiness is dependent on it, good luck with that. You know, <clears throat> and kind of interesting by by. Um, calling them intoxicants, it kind of hits the mark because it kind of clouds the truth of nature. And the the fourth uh, contemplation, everything dear and delightful will change and vanish, that's to help or weaken, help weaken or overcome greed, wanting, lust, 
if you're reflecting on that often, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to grab so hard at stuff, you know. <clears throat> and the fifth contemplation really is about, about your actions. It's designed to cause you to pause in regards to what are my thoughts and how am I speaking? What are my actions? Are they leading to harm or harmony? So it's really a reflection on personal integrity. I love the Dharma. You know, it's like this jewel with all these facets. (coughs) And you can, like explore any one of them, like these five daily recollections. No big deal. But through that simple meditation, as it is with many other kind of meditations and practices and reflections, when you kind of stick your nose in there, all of the Dharma opens. It all becomes available. The Eightfold Path, basically made up of Okay, your personal integrity. It's made up of the cultivation of wisdom. It's made up of training of the heart and mind. Okay, that's in a nutshell the Eightfold Path. So we do this little practice, these five daily recollections. And okay, we are with the, with the last one. We're working with our personal integrity, reflecting on our thoughts, speech, and actions. With looking at the the very truth of nature. We're kind of massaging our view, our perspective, our Weldenschang, if you will. That's wisdom. A refined and expanded view and perspective. Buddha called it wise view. That's wisdom. And as we do these practices, you know, and we see what arises when we reflect on these truths, some of them a little scary. And we stay with the emotions that are coming up with a tenderness and acceptance and care for ourselves because this is hard at times, reflecting on these truths. We're cultivating the power of our heart and mind, samadhi, the training. So the wisdom, the training, personal integrity, the spiritual practice, all through this little practice, the five daily recollections. So let's practice it together for a few minutes. So have yourself in a comfortable position. Reconnect with your the miracle of your aliveness right now. And I'm going to say the phrases to you. Just close your eyes. And I might suggest an image or two. Just rest back and allow yourself to be affected by the statements, by the truth. And then see if you're able to meet with whatever arises with, with a tenderness and acceptance. And you might notice some strong resistance, like, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to turn away. It's okay. That's your, that's your right. 
So, I am of the nature to age and decay. I haven't gotten beyond aging and decay. You might picture yourself older than you are. Your hair thinning even more. Life force not as strong. Maybe a little wobbly on your legs. I am of the nature to age and decay. I have not gotten beyond aging and decay. Allowing whatever arises to wash through. To the best of your ability, bringing a soft acceptance to this fact of nature. And I am of the nature to be sick or injured. I have not gotten beyond illness and injury. You might picture yourself, some of the details of being in a medical office. And a really nice person in a lab coat is giving you some information. You know, you've been waiting for these test results. I can remember when I had um, cancer many years ago and waiting to find out whether it had metastasized. Just the ups and downs and fears. I am of the nature to be sick or injured. I have not gotten beyond injury or illness. What arises... And I am of the nature to die. I have not gotten beyond death. You might imagine resting in bed. Breathing. A friend or a loved one is there. Inhaling and exhaling. Vision kind of fading. Sounds not very clear. Breath a little bit of a struggle. Inhaling and exhaling. And now the final inhale and exhale with no inhale.
I am of the nature to die. I have not gotten beyond death. Everything dear and delightful to me will change and vanish. You might think of all your possessions, your latest technology, how it will break, or you'll lose it. <clears throat> your car will fall apart. And all the rest of it, everything dear and delightful, even the best relationship, someone leaves. It's the way it is. Everything dear and delightful will change and vanish. Now tune into the importance of personal integrity. I am the heir to my actions. I am supported by my actions. I am related to my actions. Whatever I think, say, or do, skillful or unskillful, that I shall inherit. Reflect on the clarity and good feelings that arise from thought, speech, and harmony as thought, speech, and actions that support harmony. With thoughts, speech, and actions that are compassionate, there's no remorse. There's the absence of shame. There's a buoyant, clear energy of non-harming, of a compassionate, ceaselessly responsive heart that responds to all suffering, your own and others. Let's continue on and experiment a little further. Let's take a moment and release the I from the equation. Contemplate for a moment, aging is happening. Aging is known. Contemplate, illness and injury is happening. Illness is known. Injury is known. There's no I in here. Death is happening. Life force is ebbing. Death is known. Contemplate everything arises and vanishes. 
it is the way. Arising and passing is known. Contemplate thoughts, speech, actions have effects. Thoughts, speech, and actions have effects. Okay. Open your eyes. I just wanted to touch a little bit on what happens when we just move the eye a little bit to the side, whether there's an effect. So my personal experience with this practice is that without a doubt it has reduced my quotient of fear. It's become a refuge by way of kind of turning into the truth of nature. You know, so taking impermanence to heart and exploring Anicca shows you the truth of nature. And it points you really to appreciating the the preciousness of this creation. Think about it. To to savor this moving world and each encounter with all your fellow beings. Because really, through the truth of impermanence, you know that nothing remains the same. And because of that, nothing or anyone or anyone can be taken for granted. This spring of 2017, it may be your last spring. And your next meeting with your with a loved one or a dear friend may be your last. What precious moments you have if there's wakefulness to the truth of impermanence. And by mindfully watching this struggle against change by the grasping and pushing so much. and Ultimately, it teaches you about suffering and inclines you not to grip so hard. If everything's moving and changing, why, why am I trying to like grab this so, so tightly? You learn to let, let go more into the flow, to relax into the beauty of this creation and not, not maybe fight it so much to actually learn to enjoy more of the ride, to surf the wave. And lastly, sensing more directly the the changing flow of everything, internally, thoughts, sensations, emotions, etc., and the flowing of everything that we see around us, shows you and points you to the selfless nature of this creation. And it might teach you, might allow you to not take yourself so seriously. To maybe, to maybe even come to enjoy this magical cascade of sensations, thoughts, emotions without feeling so desperate, without feeling so much ownership for this, for these activities that we're experiencing. And maybe you can ease up and and not feel so driven to defend and promote a self a self that's changing moment by moment, a self that's really not so solid, not separate, not really even continuous, not permanent, 
not having a core. And when that begins to happen, your burden gets lighter. And with a lighter burden, really, you get to kick back a little more and enjoy the, the miracle, the mystery, the wonder that you've been gifted with for this short time. So I want to close with uh, one of my favorite poems by Hafiz. <clears throat> Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in a tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.